0: Hello it's Julie Bindle and today I'm speaking with Millie Hill who's a freelance journalist and the author of the best-selling The Positive Birth Book Give Birth Like a
1: Feminist As a pregnant woman at that time you know I thought that I was free having been you know in the workplace and having you know been in relationships where I felt like there was some sort of equality progress had been made I suddenly felt like I'd gone back 50 years
0: She's also written a a book that I have given to several of my young teenage and preteen relatives, my period. And she founded and ran the global positive birth movement. She's brilliant. And of course, guess what's happened to her? Because she's a feminist and deals with female biology. Have a listen. Millie, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you today.
1: It's an absolute honour to be talking to you. I've been so excited about this for such a long time.
0: <laughs> Me such too. I'm a huge
1: admirer of you.
0: Well, ditto. And we, we met each other at a conference. It was probably the filia before last, so 2021. Yeah. But we didn't really have time to talk because we're both so in demand and
1: so busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Philia is always so full, isn't it? It's always such, you know, you just, it's like a roller coaster of meeting these so many amazing people and so many different workshops, and it's just incredible. Yeah.
0: Well, you're, you know, you're a a great um advocate for women's health, choices around birth and reproductive autonomy and the like. And in a sense, because I'm I've never had children and I've never wanted children, I've Never been pregnant, I haven't given birth. It's easy, isn't it, to think as a feminist and as someone that campaigns for women's rights universally that this isn't my issue, but of course it's my issue, whether or not I've ever been pregnant or wanted to be. I mean, tell me how, tell me your journey into becoming, um, you know, best selling author on positive birth and an advocate for feminist birthing what would you call them <laughs> strategies
1: is there a, is yeah. there a
0: this birthing strategy
1: I think so well it's all about being in the driving seat like you know and knowing that you have choices and that you have bodily autonomy so yeah that's the strategy really is just becoming informed but um I think what you say is true and I think this is part of the problem is that before we have kids or if we never have kids we don't it's not really on our radar And a lot of the women who are, you know, have got a voice and are out there writing about feminism, maybe are pre-kids. And when I was pre-kids, it it just didn't occur to me. I didn't even think about it. The first time I thought about how feminism impacts on pregnancy and birth was when I was first pregnant. Um, And that was back in sort of when my first baby was born in 2008. And I just noticed as a pregnant woman at that time, you know, I thought like, feminism, I thought feminism was kind of, you know, quite sorted out situation. You know, I thought that I was free. And as a pregnant woman at that time, having been, you know, in the workplace, and having, you know, been in relationships where I felt like there was some sort of quality progress had been made, I suddenly felt like I'd gone back 50 years. And I felt very infantilized and patronized by some of the professionals I came into contact with, but just the sort of, not just particular professionals, but just the kind of overall air around the situation and phrases like, oh, you know, when you have a baby, you just have to leave your dignity at the door. Um that kind of thing. And I was thinking, really? I have to hang on a minute. Let's just rewind. <laughs> I have to leave my dignity at the door. You know, it just didn't seem um compatible with where I was in my life, sort of as a 30-year-old or 31-year-old woman who felt like I was, you know, I I was allowed to be in charge of my life and and my body I suddenly felt like that had been taken away from me slightly and that the power dynamic had shifted so that's kind of what brought me into the conversation in the first place I think.
0: And before that before your experience of giving birth did you feel that you had control over your body you said that you thought feminism had sorted things so
1: (laughs) I think I might have been a bit naive about that. (laughs)
0: but you're but you're not the only one and, and and it's also it's quite a nice belief to have isn't it yeah. that that we know things have changed immeasurably for women thanks to feminism that we know that we do have far more control over our reproduction over our bodies but going back a step i suppose looking at what the other evidence tells us how prevalent rape and sexual assault is which is an assault on our bodies um and on our bodily integrity did you kind of keep those things separate did you think that women had progressed in some ways but were still being held back in others or did you kind of live in a bit of a utopia do you think
1: um i think i was personally lucky in that i had never been sexually assaulted so i think that that has an impact on how you you know the lens that you see things through I'd certainly been treated with um, disrespect and had you know my bum pinched and had revolting things said to me, but I hadn't been raped or assaulted. Um, so I think perhaps I was slightly living in a bubble um, of, of that privilege, if you like, of having, you know, come through my twenties uh, safe from that, and I hadn't had any direct experience that. so perhaps yeah, there was just a bit of naivety from me um and i felt like my life was okay if i wanted to have an abortion i could have an abortion um but yeah i just i think i was just perhaps not really thinking about the issues enough and and just getting on with being wild and free and 20 something
0: well we all have to have at least a bit of our relative youth doing that so yeah why not but <laughs> you you soon kind of were in the deep end weren't you so you did you set up the global positive birth movement is that your initiative
1: yes it is yes it was um that was in 2012 so i'd had two babies by then um and i think you know i basically when i was pregnant for the first time i was really really terrified as most women are um i was getting all these negative messages and i was watching programs on tv like one born every minute where you know it seemed like you know really quite terrifying (laughs) like a sort of really bad trip to the dentist that went wrong
0: (laughs) I know but I love one born every minute I used to watch it with my niece and just absolutely love it because we used to hoot about some of the shall we call them inadequate fathers hanging around and not knowing what to do
1: yeah exactly yeah there's a lot of that it's a very strange program but yeah I've been I'd I'd been sort of I'd watched all that and I'd gone through having one hospital birth and then a home birth and so uh, and at the time I was um, doing quite a lot of writing I'd because of becoming a mum before being such a long story isn't it but before becoming a mum I was working as a therapist I was a type of therapist called a drama therapist um, which is a tell me what that is Okay, so it's one of the four creative arts therapies. So you've got art therapy, drama therapy, music therapy, and dance movement therapy. So drama therapy is a form of psychotherapy where um, instead of just sitting and talking, you use creative methods like storytelling, myth, um, sand tray work, um, art, role play, if you've been in a group. Um, so <laughs> so I was I'd been working with children and adults doing that. Um, and because of becoming a mum I was finding it difficult to do that work at that time so I started I, I needed a creative outlet I needed to do something so I started blogging and writing and I started writing about motherhood and what that was like and I started writing about childbirth and a lot of people were very interested in what I was saying because I was kind of like saying I was asking some questions and you know about how women were being treated and why were so many women traumatized and that kind of thing. And so that then led to me having a bit of a platform through the blog and and then some journalism, and from there at that time in twenty twelve it's hard to believe now when you look back on it, but that was when sort of Facebook was kind of exploding. Everyone was on Facebook and thought it was brilliant.
0: <laughs> um, oh God, I remember those times. In fact, I'm going back even further when Friends reunited was yeah, a huge thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm
0: six. I'm sixty, so we're 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 different. You're younger than me, but but Friends Reunited was the very first of that type of social media platform.
1: Yeah, I and remember it, that. And it sounds
0: so weird now. It I know. It seems so
1: weird. Yeah, but, but what I saw in, in Facebook at the time was an opportunity for women to communicate with each other in a way that had never been possible before. So you know, it opened up these lines of communication globally so that women could get more information from each other about their choices. Um, rather than having to just be in this bubble of their local area. And what you find when you do that with childbirth is you start to unpick what you start to think, what the heck is going on? Because a woman in Canada will be told something completely different about her risk and what she has to do than a woman in Northampton. So those two women who are perhaps both in a very similar situation with the same risk factors or whatever can talk to each other through Facebook or whatever in a way that they never could before. So that was what the positive birth movement was all about for me, was setting up something where that we had these real-life groups. So anyone could set up a group. It was completely grassroots. I did it all for, with no money involved. Um, people could set up a group in their local area. So these were people like doulas and hypnobirthing teachers, and pe- or, or anyone could do it who was just passionate about birth, like someone who would had a couple of kids or whatever and just wanted to do a group. And then they were listed on the website. And then all of the groups were connected through one big sort of social media umbrella. And then all of these women could talk to each other and and share their situations and get help from each other. And the interesting thing I was thinking about about the positive birth movement the other day was that when I first envisaged it, I really wanted it to be women's groups. I really wanted it to be women only in the real life groups because I'd run women's groups as a therapist and I understood the power of women only spaces. And quite quickly into it, because it exploded. When I, when I put the idea out into the internet, it, it just exploded. And um, there were so many groups. And quite quickly, people started saying to me, I think this is really wrong that dads can't come to these groups. You know, dads are part of birth too, they should be there, da-da-da-da-da. And I kind of, a little bit of me felt a bit disappointed because I was like, oh, that wasn't really kind of what I meant. But then I thought, no, come on, they're right, be reasonable, you know, let's have dads in. And when I say dads, I mean obviously lesbian partners as well, partners. Um, so I thought, I, yeah, I, I gave in. Um, and I just said, look, everybody can run the kind of group they want to run. And I think that was my first mistake.
0: <laughs> Do you know when, can you pinpoint when the phrase, we're pregnant, used by heterosexual couples started coming into popularity?
1: No, (laughs) but that's a very interesting question. I don't know when it started to come in, Um, but it's interesting. And it's the way that language works around birth is so fascinating. And there's been so much talk about changing language around birth that I've been involved with for the last kind of decades in setting up the positive birth movement. You know, for example, you know, not calling women a good girl when they're in labour, that kind of thing. And that's, that's been talked about endlessly, and change just hasn't happened. Um, there's so much, you know, and, you know, the phrases around women's bodies like an incompetent cervix or failure to progress and things like that. You
0: that's... know what really winds me up in terms <laughs> of the language? And again, I would just get this from um, programs we can talk about this is going to hurt, and, you know, we, we've oh. mentioned. Right, and we've mentioned, <laughs> we've mentioned one board every minute, um, but it's when the medics, whether it's the midwife or the doctor or the consultant, calls the mother, the, the woman, mum.
1: Oh my God, I know. They call
0: her mum. Talk about infantilizing and dehumanising. I mean, she has a name. Yes. She has a name.
1: And they, they actually do that to you when you're a, a mum after the baby's been born as well. Like if you're in hospital with a toddler or whatever, they'll say, and what does mum think oh. to you? And you're like, oh, <laughs> is this it's the right moment to tell you I hate that?
0: <laughs> awful. But let's, I want to yeah. talk about your, um, your feminism and how that relates to the work that you do and, and making a living, which I, I always find it really quite odd that people sometimes want to give me money to do things that I think you know this is great I love it so much you don't need to pay me but then of course I remember that you know you need money to buy food and things but when did you decide to write your book and was it a commercial decision as well as a decision to kind of get the word out to a wider population audience readership? Well
1: I mean money is really sort of interesting topic isn't it in itself i mean it's very difficult to make a living out of writing as you know um, and i think i've just been limping along over the past 10 years since i became a mum i've now got three kids and you know yes yeah, it's, it's financially it's it's pretty chaotic but um so i and i don't think i've ever been uh, particularly driven by making money as you know that's not really my my goal but obviously i do need like you say i've got to eat <laughs> and so have my kids um but no the the book the positive birth book really did come from a huge place of passion I think in me um of wanting to sort of communicate with other women some of these ideas that I had because I really felt that women deserve better so no, I mean, it, I, I'd already been writing, a lot of the book was based on stuff that I'd already been writing because I had a column for a couple of years that I wrote every week. It was it went on for two and a half years and it was in a magazine called Best Daily, which was the online version of Best Magazine, which, as you probably know, oh, yes, know, it's like a yeah. really really misogynist well, Sorry, I should say that I'll probably gets. I've
0: but... <laughs> I've written I've written for them. I wrote yeah. I wrote a feature quite some time ago um, about the story of a young woman who had been driven. To kill her very abusive partner um it, as an act of self-defense and actually they treated me very well they treated the story very well they allowed her to have copy approval which is rare so sometimes yeah. it's interesting isn't it the outlets that on the surface see seem to be very kind of feminist unfriendly
1: yeah
0: are are some of, sometimes the best
1: yeah um, the daily mail is another good example of that i think they're a lovely bunch um, and they pay very well as well which is, is very different to some of the other papers which might be more worthy
0: well and actually the worst <laughs> publication I have ever well the I suppose the worst I've been treated as opposed to the worst publication that's a whole different matter the publication I was treated appallingly by throughout except for one person at one time who was a different commissioning editor it's the new statesman right Awful 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 I would never ever write for them and listen new statesman if anyone is listening to this podcast don't offer me a column okay i'm not (laughs) going to write for you but anyway carry on so so you had your you had your column and the book grew out of that
1: well exactly so i was writing this weekly column for about two and a half years online for best daily um and they 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 gave me this first commission to write about kate middleton and why was every it was when she was first pregnant um, and everyone was saying, oh, yeah, haha, she wants to have a home birth, yeah, silly woman. Um, and so I wrote about the kind of sexism underneath that, you know, this idea that this woman, this silly little girl has this dream of having this candlelit positive experience. And she'll soon learn, you know, when once her feet are up in those stirrups and she's screaming her head off, then she'll learn. I mean, it can, there are so many parallels. There's so much misogyny in all this, Julie. I'm sure you can hear it you know we will show this woman how stupid she is and when once she's suffering she'll realize and so I thought right so I wrote about that and because that uh, that article went absolutely viral and that was how I got the job because they I think at the time I don't think people realized that there was an appetite for this conversation amongst women women like me who were mums who'd had all these awful experiences or who were pregnant and who were they, they were all on Facebook and they were all talking to each other and they were all saying, Hey, hang on a minute. What, How, why does it have to be like this? This is misogyny. This is sexism. Right. I'm being told what to do. I'm being disempowered. I'm being, you know, infantilized. And so-, so, so,
0: so in fact it was pre well, it ran in tandem with mom's net, but it's yeah. a similar issue, isn't it? So women can be, can come to a realization, have a light bulb moment, when it's to do with issues of childbirth of raising children of pregnancy even if we haven't had that experience it really has taught me a huge amount talking to women who have given birth who are raising children
1: yeah yeah and you know it's it's women talking to women and I think that for all the ills of social media and the internet I think it's been brilliant for that because it's opened up these lines of communication and it's it's created this kind of like sort of like mum's net you know is another good example of of this sort of immediate women's group that women can go to and when you look at the history of childbirth and and you know and women's bodies this idea that we are just a container and a, you know a vessel for the baby yes. a, a shell that, that can be cast like cast aside once the healthy baby right. is born you know it's got quite long roots really hasn't it
0: and speaking of which surrogacy
1: yeah.
0: women as vessels women as containers women who don't matter in relation to the baby, and then the commercialization of pregnancy, the pimping of pregnancy.
1: Yeah.
0: And in my view, there's no such thing as altruistic surrogacy. It, it's, it's, as, it's as rare as the genuinely happy hooker, the woman who really loves being prostituted. They may well exist, but they're so rare. I've spoken to so many so-called altruistic surrogates, who tell me that of course the cash was the incentive, as well as the fact that we are conditioned and socialised into being nice and selfless and kind and doing things for other people. Yeah. So I, I, what what do you what do you think about the experience of birth for these women, and and the the language around that commissioning parents, um, surrogate rather than mother it's in my view it's pretty grim
1: I think it is pretty grim obviously um altruistic I, I I'm new to surrogacy I'm going to be honest with you and I'm a, I'm slightly ashamed to say that actually because I feel like when I wrote Give Birth Like a Feminist that's something that I missed out and I shouldn't have done the reason that I it wasn't really on my radar was because I'd only ever heard these altruistic stories I'd never I, I hadn't really ever Um, gone down in the the birth world that I was in the birth world bubble people were just not talking about surrogacy in negative terms I'd never heard that until the last couple of years so uh, yeah it just it I had spoken to someone who was a surrogate um, for a family member and they had some negative feelings about it Um, and I don't know how they feel now so I can't speak for them now but I mean it did strike me that it was quite a an enormous thing to do in terms of you know the emotional journey that you must go on but I think I just accepted that some people felt that they wanted to help other people to that extent you know like say it was a sister um, or a friend that they would that that was an, an amazing act of kind of you know self, self-sacrificing self kind of like you know altruism so Yes I have I am only just beginning to learn about commercial surrogacy and I'm sorry to you know I'm sorry to say that I feel bad that I've I, it's I, it, but it also interests me that nobody's talking about it in that world it's um but then in in the that world. That is
0: interesting.
1: Yeah in you know it's very narrow I suppose and uh, you know it's very um it has its own narrative like every other sort of segment I suppose of of the world and a lot of it is you know obviously as we know ideologically captured around the uh, gender issues as well so Uh,
0: of course of course and I mean I haven't considered the breast milk trade I have spent a long time campaigning against the sex trade surrogacy all forms of violence against women and girls and have been attacked by men's rights activists all the way through that. And now the kind of new face of men's rights activism is the trans ideologues. And there you were um, throughout those years, throughout many of those years, doing the work that we've just been talking about on positive birth and a feminist approach. And you ended up being attacked by men's rights activists in the guise of um, concerned marginalized peoples. And you, you talked earlier on about how, when you set up women only groups, it was, well, why can't the fathers come? What about the men? And in my view, the type of trans activism that has targeted you and me for the work that we do, that's exactly what they're saying. What about the men? You can't meet as only women. You, you're not allowed to be outside of our control. Tell yeah. me how this built up for you. We're not going to focus very much on this because I'm much more interested in your achievements and the positive difference you've made in the world rather than having to get you to dwell on horrible things. But I think it's really important that we get it out there. What happened to you?
1: Well, um, after I, when I wrote the Positive Birth book, which was 2017, um, the, the language issue wasn't, a, wasn't coming up in the birth world and I'm just going to call it the birth world as in you know all the people I was connected to who were working in the field of birth Um, and so that was fine and then over the next couple of years in between then and the publication of Give Birth Like a Feminist in 2019 it started to become more started to sort of crackle and fizzle away a bit so there were phrases being used like birthing people um, and assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth when Give Birth Like a Feminist came out, I can remember or just before, obviously when it was in edits, I can remember thinking, should I change my language in some way or should I put in one of these disclaimers that people put in now? And they're in all books now, actually, about women's health. It's extraordinary. Uh, something in me at that point resisted and I thought, no, I'm not going to write a disclaimer. This is a book about women and misogyny and violence against women and sexism and power dynamics and it's about you know i don't i don't i don't have to apologize for that this is you know it's a book about sexism and i'm going to use sex-based language so i left it um and then in between and then it came out in 2019 and then it started to sort of ramp up in the birth world where this language is being used more and more and the pressure to change language on websites and articles and books and everything was growing um and no one was allowed to question it. I was, you know, I was sort of kicked out, I think, of a, a group or really got wrapped on the knuckles a couple of times for saying, like, just perfectly reasonable questions. At this point, I wasn't at all militant like I am now. <laughs> I was just saying things like, okay, so birthing people, who chose that? Who decided that was what people wanted to be called? Because I was curious as a writer and someone who's interested in language, I thought, well, what's, what's it about? Why birthing people? You know, who, who is the person that said, this is the word we're going to have? And then, of course, again, as someone who's interested in language, I was saying, "Assigned at birth doesn't make sense because that isn't what happens." You know, I know this because I've had babies and I've written books about childbirth. That babies are, um, you know, sexed in the womb usually now, and it's not assigned either. That's the wrong word. Just linguistically, it's not assigned. It's assigned implies given from the outside, but sex is innate in in the body. So I was saying perfectly, what well, I felt perfectly reasonable things like this. And I was getting into hot water and then the pandemic happened. And I was so I kind of used the opportunity of being locked in my house with three young children to sort of go on a bit of a research project about gender. And I listened to a lot of podcasts um, and I read a lot of articles and I started to notice that women that I admired as, you know, for example, Suzanne Moore, um, Helen Lewis at the time, although I think she's gone a bit quiet on it, but um, Victoria Smith um, was sort of talking about, you know, women who I'd already had knew of. And the other thing that happened was that when I was writing Give Birth Like a Feminist, I made contact with Jane Claire Jones. Well, The reason I made contact with her was because she had written a very academic paper about um, childbirth. And cesarean and because of that i'd i'd messaged her on twitter and said oh i'm just reading your you know i think she sent me the paper and we talked about it a bit um and so i started following her on twitter and so obviously as people listen to this who know about jane claire jones will know she was that absolute powerhouse through those years of 2019 2020 2021 talking about gender and she was really opening my eyes um, i guess that she broke me out of that bubble that i was in And I'd also seen, you know, uh, a movie called Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. And I actually knew the person who um, directed it. So that kind of helped me again think, because I think a lot of it, you sort of think, am I going insane here? Because people keep telling you you're a bigot, you're being bigoted. And so you need that sort of affirmation to, for want of a better word, by by finding that people who you consider to be completely sane and not bigoted are on the same path and on the same sort of, line of thinking so it was all about right. a journey for me I think um and I just came to the conclusion more and more and more that this is just this is bullshit so what then happened sorry it's so hard to cut these stories short but what it's then happened, fine <laughs> what then happened was, I know um, that
0: these stories are complex so oh uh, yeah you you take your time
1: they're very complex but yeah, so then it was it was November 2020. And um, it was the international day to end violence against women. So obviously, um, having very fairly recently had a book published about obstetric, you know, it's not all about obstetric violence, but some, a lot of it is, um, you know, someone tagged me in a Instagram post. I didn't know the person, but they tagged me in this post, and it had all these tiles, you know, that you could scroll through. Um, and it was t- the first tile said obstetric violence um, is all about power and patriarchy or something. I thought, well, okay, great. Yeah, that's true. And then it said, um, it said, I just write these things down because I forget them. It said, birthing people are seen as the fragile sex. That was the next sentence. And I thought, Oh, come on. Oh <laughs> God, please. You know, you can't, you're mixing up your language there in a way that just doesn't make any sense. It's not, then it's not birthing it's not people who are seen as the fragile sex you know you're ignoring you're ignoring the issue there in a spectacular way by putting those two phrases fragile sex and birthing people together so I I was very polite I'll tell you what I said I, I said I, I could read it out if you want but I mean it's I literally said so politely um you know thanks for tagging me in this post so interesting um but in my opinion, and my, you know, I'm terribly sorry about having an opinion and, you know, the way you sort of <laughs> preamble these things. I didn't go in like say, you know, this is bullshit. I just said, you know, it's in my opinion, um it's not birthing people who are seen as the fragile sex, it's women. And as I said, let's not forget who the oppressed are here and why. Right. And which I thought was perfectly okay. And they said, you know, well, I can't remember they said oh well actually it's not just women who give birth and stuff and I said well that's fine you think that that's up to you but I I actually think that it's it's we should say women and that's what I'll and and that it was very very mild-mannered very um you know an intellectual rather than a kind of visceral level that I spoke and absolute all hell broke loose that was the catalyst for all hell breaking oh dear so what did
0: this hell what what shape did this hell come in Millie tell us
1: well, it was a sort of um, a purity spiral, um, an internet pylon, um, mainly on Instagram, but all over the uh, face, you know, Facebook as well. Not really Twitter, but it, Instagram and Facebook pylon. So, just lots and lots and lots of posts where they all tagged me, um, and they were all doula's hypnobirth. This wasn't like you know. Uh, avatar people with blue haired avatars or whatever these were people who were part of the world that I was working in who and some of them who were even running positive birth movement groups or had run positive birth movement groups this was a very much sort of in in um, a lot of people who knew each other you know it wasn't strangers they all were tagging me and they were using the most uh, appalling you know saying that I was you know hateful and vile and a piece of shit and just absolutely you know that I was violent um and all of these I mean just unbelievable language they were using about me and to describe were you me.
0: responsible for the genocide of many trans women at that
1: stage well yeah probably this organization called Birthrights, who are um a, a very they're very established again in the birth world as a charity who um promote women's rights in childbirth. And I've been supporting them since they started. I knew all the people involved. I'd spoken at their inaugural conference. Um, I donated some money to them in the pandemic from an uh, online course that I'd done. Um, and they're in my book, both of my books. And I promote, promote, promote them everywhere I'd been for the last sort of nearly 10 years. They'd done this post on social media, um, which didn't name me, but which, um, was about inclusive language. So they'd obviously seen what was going on and did this post and quite quickly, people started to tag me in the comments, you know, like, paging Millie Hill. Have you seen this, Millie Hill? You hateful bigot, all this kind of stuff. So it it was like birthrights came in and rubber stamped what was happening to me.
0: Yeah, well, they did. I mean, it wasn't like they did. Yeah. That's exactly what they did. We saw it. It was shocking.
1: Yeah that's what they did and then at 10 o'clock at night a letter came in from the then CEO of Birthrights saying that they would no longer associate with me.
0: What did that feel like when you read that letter?
1: Oh, well you know it's funny I'm, as I'm saying it now I can feel myself feeling quite emotional isn't that funny and yet it's like you know a couple of years ago now, Um, three years ago.
0: That's I mean. totally exactly understandable there's key moments in my various cancellations that I remember uh, like a body memory it just twists a knife in your gut yeah.
1: it's it's just so it's so hard it's so hard to get over these things I think I think like a bereavement in a way they sort of stay with you for the rest of your life you move on you you get strong you you recover
0: they change you
1: it becomes part of your story I'm still there, telling it to yeah. you now you know and it's like why do I have to why does that have to be part of my story that I was you know treated so appallingly for oh, oh yeah it just feels really it's quite irritating to me what did you do <laughs> where
0: were, where were you where were you when you read that letter
1: I was on my sofa at home you know that everyone else had gone to bed I think it was sort of last thing at night so I was just just couldn't believe it really I couldn't believe it I think part of me has always thought surely people are going to see sense I think part of me still feels like that I mean, I've just had an incident this week. I don't know if you've seen, but this woman in Germany, my, my book was translated into German by this very lovely, quite small German publisher. Um, and uh, a, a German um, book blogger who has about 10,000 followers on Instagram did a review of it and it was lovely. It was, she, was, she loved the book. And this is the new edition, by the way, which has a chapter at the end, which tells the entire story of what happened to me. So I can only assume that she hadn't read to the end of the book when she did the review. <laughs> because um, then she the- know- uh,
0: and the this edition uh, which we're going to put a link to came out in january this year that's right isn't it with a new yeah. chapter
1: okay it has, so it has a new chapter so yeah this this german woman she did she did a review and then um someone contacted her to tell her you know that i was a, a transphobe uh she got in touch with me and said someone's just told me you're a transphobe surely this can't be true so i had this long conversation with her again where i i kept my optimism that surely Nobody with a, in, a, with a, in their right mind could not see this issue clearly if I explained it to them politely. And I did explain it to her politely for about two hours back and forth on messages. And she then went and put a disclaimer at the top of the review with like a little exclamation mark in a triangle, like a warning sign. Please know everybody that I didn't know when I posted this review that Millie had oh. made several transphobic statements or something. And I was like, that's defamation. You know, that's not true
0: the the cowardice <laughs> the, the cowardice and the duplicity and the lack of integrity and lack of honesty is shameful in these scenarios
1: it is but at the same time you just it's also quite mind-boggling isn't it because you think you know i i i, has, I spoke to her at length i've i've posted on my substack the conversation that we had and people have got, got in touch with me to say, Millie, how did you stay so patient? How were you so patient with this woman? And I really was, Julie, you know, because I really do have this optimism in me, this kind of, you know, keeping proof wrong. But I just think surely if you just explain this to people, they're going to see it because it's like as plain as the nose on your face.
0: But they do see it. There's not one person on the planet that thinks that men give birth. There's not one person on the planet that genuinely believes trans women are female, are actual women. So it's just, it's a fiction, it's nonsense, and it's another tool to bash us with. I'm not suggesting that there aren't genuine concerns for those with gender dysphoria who wish to live as the opposite sex. I'm not denying that. What I absolutely will not have is being fed a load of fictional nonsense about biological reality. And I mean, you are obviously a champion uh, for women, uh, for female biology, and the relevance of that to our lives, whether we have babies or not. How on earth can you live with that? You couldn't. You had you had to speak out, didn't you?
1: But but actually, I think that that's partly why this happened to me because you know, the, the mantra that everybody has to repeat, this idea that trans women are women, and it's no longer what it used to be, which is that we accept you as a woman, you know, because we're being nice to you and we, you know, we want you to to feel, you know, we want want to be nice to you. We want to, you know, how can I put it? I think it used to be a sort of like, well, we all know, underneath the surface, we all know you're not actually a, a literal female woman, but we, you say you want to be a woman. So that's okay. You know, come and, you know, come to the party. That's changed. It's now, you now have to, it's now become more, religious almost in the sense that you have to believe that they are literally women the mantra means trans women are literally women well there's one thing that stands in the way of that being true and that's female biology all the things Mm -hmm. I write about menstruation breastfeeding pregnancy birth menopause all of those experiences are experiences that no matter what a trans woman is never going to have and so they have to ideologically capture all of those industries if you like and and worlds and the language around all of those experiences because those experiences Mm -hmm. are standing in the way of trans women being women and I think when when women in the birth world and the breastfeeding world use the ideological language I think they they think it's about trans men they think they're being kind Mm -hmm. to actually their sisters really who identify as male and who might still go through to have a a pregnancy for example that's who they think Mm -hmm. they're being kind to but I yes. don't think it's about trans men. I think it's about trans women because if you can get someone it like is. me or anyone who's you know, got a, a breastfeeding organization or whatever to say, it's not only women that breastfeed, then you know, you've, you've won. You've, you've, changed the, you've changed the story completely to mean that female biology is no longer something that's exclusively female. It's, it's so trans women can be women.
0: It's very disturbing to see men breastfeed and produce what they say is milk that's the same as mother's milk, breast milk. And it looks to me like a sexual fetish and I'm not having it. And this is me saying it, I'm not putting words in your mouth. But I do think that we need to be able to speak of our genuine concern, even if it's disgust about the way that men appropriate women's bodies, because This is what we're in the business of as feminists. I talk about my disgust at men being sexually attracted to children. My disgust at men wanting to have sex with women who are conked out on alcohol and drugs. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be able to use these words and to be visceral in our language about these things. Because what you do and what I do, we're in different worlds in many ways but it's all under the same banner of feminism, of women's rights, and the quest for women's liberation. What what are you doing next, Millie? Tell me about your plans for the future and what you're working on at the moment and where we can find all of your work. Give yourself a bit of a plug.
1: (laughs) I am writing my fourth book um, and I'm trying to finish it at the moment. So I'm at that awful stage of just like literally groaning and sighing and wailing every day at my laptop and writing it's horrible it's horrible (laughs) so yeah that's what I'm doing so that is book four and I think I'm really excited about it really even though I wish someone else would finish it for me (laughs) because it's kind of bringing everything together that I've kind of has you know it's quite a nice step forward for me because I did a lot of work around the birth stuff and then I wrote a book about periods for pre preteen girls, you know, nine to 12 year old girls. And that is such
0: a wonderful book. I keep meaning to say this to you. I I, I read that book because I needed something to give to a, a young person who has that to come yet. It, you know, she She's she's not been given very good education so far about her body and uh and the like and I read it before giving it to her so if she asked me questions about it I would be informed it's such a brilliant book listeners please please get it please oh, give it to <laughs> anyone that would, might need it be interested in it
1: thank you yeah I do love that book actually I've had loads of lovely feedback about it it was just a pandemic thing that that you know someone my agent said you know do you fancy doing a period book sort of thing and I was like literally in the lockdown and there was it was partly, I suppose, I did have some of the um, stuff about, you know, children with gender dysphoria in the back of my okay. mind as well in, in when I was writing it, because that was what I was reading about a lot about at the time and learning about at the time. And I did want to write a book that was, you know, positive for young girls that, that actually said to young girls, look how, how amazing you are. Look at how amazing your body is, because it's the body that's key in all of this, isn't it? Um, but also another reason I wanted to write it was because I'd... I'd I'd got through partly through a meeting that I had and work, some workshops that I did with this amazing woman called Jane Hardwick Collings. Um, I'd started to make links between, I'd been so focused on childbirth, and I went on these workshops with her. The first one was about menstruation. And what she made me realize was that it's all connected, um, and that kind of open my brain up to all these new thoughts which has been so fantastic and that's kind of what this book this new book is about it's about the whole journey that, that women go through through their lives um and the way that we are sort of at every turn pathologized and made to feel like our bodies need medicalization and and are inadequate in some way or are disgusting and shameful in some way um and kind of it's it's a big kind of like challenge back to that but that's what the period book was about as well it was you know, because people, people say, well, you know, it's not, where's the connection? You, first of all, you think, why uh, menstruation and birth? They're not really the same topic, but actually they are connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what Jane talks about is how, you know, the way we talk to young girls about their periods, how that they, they show up to the birth birthroom with, with some of that stuff.
0: One of the first things that really made me think very consciously about these issues was I was still in my teens. I was a very young feminist. I think I was 18 or 19. I was on some work experience um, job with an older feminist who taught me the ropes. And she went into a shop and I was with her. We were buying our lunch. And she bought some either sanitary towels or tampons. And when the shopkeeper put them in a brown paper bag and fastened the top, everything else was just left out the milk the bread the chocolate yeah she very very the boat, the loo calmly roll. <laughs> the loo roll yeah exactly she very very calmly tipped them out of the brown paper bag folded it up and passed it back to the shopkeeper and said I don't need that that's fine and it resonated it made me think yeah it's why why is this product shameful Why are they called feminine hygiene? This isn't about our hygiene. We're not feminine. So that really resonated with me. And that's partly why I love that period book, because it deals with all of that stuff that I just wish we'd all had as kids.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, adults, you know, need to think about it as well, because we've all been raised with all of that sort of shame and stigma. And we haven't, You don't really notice it. You know, it's the same as the healthy baby is all that matters thing. You hear it so much that it just becomes part of your sort of cultural wallpaper. And it's only when you start to think about it, you think, hang on a minute, why do I keep my tampons hidden from my kids? You know, I speak to so many mums who say that, you know, or or if they've got their periods, they don't let the kids actually see that they've got their period. And you think, no, you know, it's actually really good for children to to be exposed to period blood and period pads or or to hear their mum say, I'm going to have a day on the sofa today because I've got my period or I'm menopausal and I feel like shit and I need to have a break. We need to be honest with each other and with our kids about what it's like to be female and and the reality of being female and destigmatise it.
0: Thank God for you, Millie, because that's exactly what we need right now more than ever. Despite all the decades of feminism, we've taken a few steps backward and we need to get back on track. So thank you for the work that you do. Please let's talk again when your book comes out. Yes. And it's been just such a pleasure having this conversation.
1: It's been a pleasure for me as well. It's such an honour to talk to you, it really is.
0: Hope you enjoyed that. Millie's great because she's eminently reasonable, but she will not concede her ground. Just the sort of woman I like. See you next time.